right, what's up, Traders Point family? Good to see everybody. Want to uh, welcome everybody joining us at all of our locations and online. And, uh, you know, I don't know if uh, this is really coming through the, the cameras or not, but uh, if you're here at our Northwest campus, if you uh, kind of smell kind of a strange, kind of funky stench in the air, uh, that's because 2,500 fifth and sixth graders took over the building this weekend. <laughs> Uh, for CIY Superstart, and uh, man, what an incredible weekend they had, and uh, yeah, man, if you had a chance to be a part of it, and uh, we, my fifth grade daughter, she was so excited to come, she had such a great time, and I just want to just take a minute to just thank the hundreds of difference makers around here who served at Superstart, and many of them came back to serve this weekend, and they're, man, they're the true heroes, you guys are just uh, incredible, and I just want to thank you for the investment that you're making. And uh, you know, we, we dropped our daughter off Friday night and I was just so proud of that whole team. Like it was like a well-oiled machine. They were doing such an amazing job. And everybody that I interacted with just had this like um, joy to them. It was crazy. It was almost as if we're in a sermon series on it. I mean, it was just, just amazing to see. So I just wanna thank you guys for that. And then I also just wanted to let you know that, uh, man, last week, if you weren't able to, to be with us, like you really missed, I think, just a, a significant weekend where at, at, towards the end of the message, we just kind of created some space for God to kind of show up and to pour out his spirit in the room. Uh, I love what uh, John Tyson says, you know, uh, God goes where he's wanted. And we just kind of cried out to God at the end of the message across all of our campuses. And I just invited you to lay the baggage that perhaps you've been carrying for a long time um, at the altar. And just take a posture of, of kneeling before God. And so many of you did, even across all of our locations. And I had texts and DMs and emails from people uh, throughout Sunday and even during the week just telling me you know, what they, not specifically what they confessed, but that they confessed. And that they, there was a spirit of reconciliation and, and repentance. And I heard from married couples who took a step towards health in their marriage. And I heard people that uh, said, man, I was carrying around these bags for a decade and I, I finally let go of it. And it was just an amazing, just taste. I don't think it's everything that God wants to do to reawaken us to what he desires for us, but it was a taste. And so I, I've come back thirsty uh, this week. I don't know about you, just to have a, more of an encounter with God. And so we had um, every, every Monday, uh, our leadership team kind of gets together and we just sort of like evaluate, you know, kind of the, the, the previous Sunday and then kind of forecast where we're headed. And all of us were in agreement that uh, we sense God doing something. And I pointed that out last week, just across our nation, college campuses, Jesus got his own commercial at the Super Bowl. You know, there's a movie out right now. I mean, there's like all this stuff that's happening where it, it feels as if God wants to reawaken us and he wants to just pour out his spirit. And so we said, you know what, well, we, we can't delay any longer. Like we need to do a worship night, just an extended period of time where we can hear from him. So we did not have a worship night planned for 2023, there's a number of reasons for that. Uh, but we just uh, called an audible uh, this last Monday and we said we, we need to do a worship night. And uh, so we're gonna do one this uh, coming Wednesday, uh, seven o'clock here at the Northwest Campus. And I wanna encourage you to be here. And uh, you know, you, you can worship you know, God like right where, like this, I fully believe this, the spirit of God will meet you in your living room and meet you in your car. But there is something about like a pouring out of his spirit when you gather with others like crying out before him. And so I wanna encourage you to be here. We did a worship night uh, about a year ago, uh, and, and in my estimation, that was the turning point 
uh, as our church, uh, post-COVID, uh, for God to begin to really do some things in and through our church. And so I'm really expecting God to show up in big ways this Wednesday night. Um, we expect to fill it, so come early, carpool, so that way parking lot you know, isn't a nightmare. And, uh, and, and if this room is too intense for some of you, uh, we'll have other venues around the building for you to join us and worship just with the gathering. We'll have rooms for families. Uh, we just want you to be here for that. And I also wanna point out this. Um, I have had a trip planned uh, to Israel for about six months, and I leave Tuesday morning. So I'm like super bummed that I'm not gonna be able to be here for this, uh, but I will join you via screen from Israel, all right? I mean, I'll be in Israel. So uh, anyway, uh, I'll, be, I'll be there for about 10 days and back. So yeah, looking forward to that. If you have a uh, Bible and a guidebook, go ahead and find Philippians chapter two. Philippians two, verses 12 through 18 is the ground we're gonna cover today. If you're just now joining us for this series, we are in week six of a 10-part series uh, where we're just walking our way through um, the book of Philippians. You know, it's kind of verse by verse. Um, seeing what God has for us in this, and we're calling the whole series A Rebel's Guide to Joy. And you might be like, well, what in the world does that mean? And uh, historically speaking, you know, to be a rebel within our culture meant, you know, somebody that would shrug off societal norms and expectations and just sort of do their own thing, you know, just kind of march to the beat of their own drum. It's the James Dean's or Lady Gaga's among us, you know, depending upon your generation, I don't know. And, and uh, you know, it's just somebody who says, okay, let me just kind of look and see where everybody else is moving. I'm gonna go in the opposite direction, right? That's what it means to be a rebel. And I think a lot of us sort of envy that, we aspire to that, we may not always have the courage to do that, but that's what we desire. Well, here's what we're doing, like in our culture today, it kind of seems like what everyone appears to be doing is anger, addiction, and anxiety. Kind of seems like what everyone seems to be doing is cynicism, criticism, and can cancel culture. Like we've got all of those things down. So to be a rebel would mean that we would move in the opposite direction of those things. The norm nowadays is that we would chase after things that hopefully would fill us or would provide fulfillment only to find that it's leaving us emptier than ever. And so with rare exception, the default of most people is impatience and irritation. And what we would desire to do as the people of God who encounter God is that we would rebel against all of that in the best way and stand out within this culture in which we live. And so we've just been saying that uh, the thing that this broken, hurting, divided, angry world needs right now more than ever is a joyful church. Like, like people that will be authentically joyful, not faking it, but it will just be spilling out of them because we have been people who have encountered God. Now, thankfully, uh, Paul writes a letter that kind of guides us through how to do this. And if you've been here during the series, I've just kind of pointed out that uh, Philippians is Paul's happiest letter. Like he is so joyful as he writes this, which was really um, wild considering the circumstances in which he wrote it. And we've already pointed out that he was imprisoned, quite possibly he was on house arrest in Rome uh, for two to three years during this time period where he writes a series of letters, Philippians being one of them, and he was also chained to a palace guard as he writes to us to encourage us to be joyful. Now, I've shared that with you already. I haven't really given you a lot of the backstory, though, around Paul. Let me just kind of give you the Cliff Notes version. 
Paul traveled all throughout Europe starting churches, and then he goes to Jerusalem uh, to teach in the temple about Jesus. The Jewish leaders are furious that he is there, so a mob attacks him. They drag him outside of the temple, and they are just about to beat him to death when somebody calls the cops. And the cops happened to be the Romans. And so the Roman guards showed up and they're getting ready to arrest Paul. And Paul mentions in that conversation that he has dual citizenship. He is a Jew, but he also is a Roman citizen. And that kind of changed things. Like, well, let's just let Rome deal with you. So they put him on a ship across the Mediterranean to Rome. But while he is on the ship, this massive storm blows up and he gets caught in this storm and they are lost at sea. Likely, Paul is chained uh, at the bottom of this vessel uh, in the middle of a storm with no Dramamine, so that would have just been the worst. And they finally wash ashore. They're shipwrecked for about three months. Finally, they get to Rome, and uh, they put him on house arrest or put him in a prison cell for two to three years, and then, then one day, he gets a knock at the door, and I say, hey, Paul, we're gonna go for a little walk, Godfather style. And as they do with a lot of high-profile prisoners, they would march them three to four miles outside of town uh, where they would behead them in private. That's how things end for Paul. Anybody else had a week like that? You know, it's like, you know, I had a, I had a, I had a flat tire this week. Uh, I went to the IU game this week. All right, that, that's about, I'm so sorry, who's your fans, all right? That was awful, all right? So it's like, that's about the worst that happened to me all week. But, but here Paul had all this stuff happen to him. And here, here's my point in saying all that. If anyone had reason to complain, if anyone had reason to be bitter, it would have been Paul. But instead, he encourages us with things like this. Rejoice in the Lord sometimes. No, no, he says all the time, always. He says to live is Christ, to die is gain. He writes things like this. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Which means this, if Paul could find joy in those circumstances, then I can find joy in mine. If Paul can find joy in those circumstances, then there isn't any circumstance where I can't. And that doesn't mean that today I wanna minimize what you're walking through. Please don't hear me say that. I know that some of you right now are in the middle of a really dark season. I know that some of you are right, right now, you're, you're walking through like unbearable pain and grief and trauma. Your, your knees are about to buckle because of the pressure that you are under. So I'm not trying to minimize any of that. I'm actually trying to show you a way to grab onto joy. I want you to begin to think about joy this way. It is the bulletproof vest that you wrap around your soul so saying that nothing can touch me. That, that, that uh, you, can, you can take away my health, uh, you can uh, take away my resources, uh, you can take away relationships, you will not touch my joy because Jesus conquered a grave so that I could have it. And so we, we are a people that simply says this, man, come at me what will, but I'm going to be a joyful person because joy is never dependent upon our circumstances. It is always dependent upon who God says we are in Christ. That can't ever be taken from you. However, here, here's the thing. Here's what I want you to see. And it's what Paul's gonna drive at in the, in the text today. When you come across people, hopefully like uh, uh, those of us gathered today who are just running after joy, you will always find uh, the joy suckers among us. 
You know, like, don't look at them. But it's like the, it's the, it's the, it's the Eeyores, the Karens, the wet blankets among us, all right? They're, they're there, all right? And there's an Eeyore in all of us, you know? That, uh, you know, if we can find something to complain about, if we can find something to grumble about, if we can find something to be bitter about, you know, you know we'll, we'll find it. And uh, that just means we're human, all right? And that this is what was happening in the church in Philippi. And so today's text, verses 12 through 18, is really a continuation of verses 1 through 11, what we covered last week. And this is what Paul addressed. Now, in my opinion, just my opinion, the church in Philippi was Paul's favorite. And they were a great church. Like out of a lot of the churches that he wrote to in the New Testament, this church had a lot going for it, but it still wasn't perfect. And it's just another reminder that no matter uh, how great or healthy a church is, there's always room to grow. There's always room to improve. And so Paul kind of presses on that with them. And this is what was at the center of Philippi's issue is that they were a good church. They loved Jesus. They They were on mission, they loved each other, but they were under a tremendous amount of pressure from the outside. So they were living in Rome and there was a lot swirling in Roman culture. And so Rome was putting all this pressure on the church in Philippi from the outside to the point that their their legs began to shake and it created tension from the inside and they began to become divided over secondary things that were happening within the culture. Sound familiar? And so there's all this pressure. Now, Now here's what I want you to write down in your guidebook. Pressure always reveals character. Character is not necessarily who you are when everything's going great. Character is who you are when things are falling apart. Character is who you are whenever you're carrying a heavy load. Character is who you are when there's pressure. This is why I've told my teenage daughters, and I don't know if they're, they're, they're too excited about this, but I've told my teenage daughters that you know one day uh, when they find a young man that they, they might want to marry, let's just say 30 years from now. And... Um, <laughs> Just kidding, kind of. Um, but let's just say they, they, they and I, I've just told them, I said, you know what I'd really love to do is, uh, you know, before he proposes marriage to you, I'd, I'd really like to take him on a trip. I mean, I'll bring him back, but, uh, <laughs> but, but I'd, like, I'd like to take him on a trip, like maybe overseas somewhere, uh, you know, and like maybe the slums of Kenya, you know, some, somewhere high stress, like culture shock. And I just wanna intentionally put him in a place where he's stressed out. Like, like I don't wanna kill him, I just wanna get close, all right? And, and, and then I just wanna see what comes out of him when he's stressed. I don't think they're too excited about it, but, but you know, that's what I'd like to do. This is what's happening in the church in Philippi. All this pressure, all this stress, I think it's something for us to be reminded of. You know, anytime we have an economic downturn, anytime we have a presidential election, anytime we have a pandemic, anytime we have racial tension and social division, it reveals a lot about who or what we're looking to. Reveals a lot about the character that maybe we've been developing. It reveals a lot about the spirit of God that he's, is either with or not with us. And so Paul urges them to be unified. That was last week's message. We're not talking uniformity. We're not saying that everybody needs to look alike, talk alike, act alike, think alike. That's a cult. 
a church is a group of people that look very different, multiple generations, different ethnicities, different perspectives, political persuasions, all unified under the person of Jesus Christ and on mission for him to advance his kingdom within the world. So as we come to verse 12 today, uh, we see here, I mean, uh, Paul would even say, like, how in the world can we do this? And he would say, well, we look to Jesus, who being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He, he got low, he, he emptied himself, and then God lifted him up. That was where we left off last week. It was a hymn the early church sang. Now as we come to verse 12, Paul's gonna resume. Here's uh, three things that I see in this text. If you're taking notes, you might write these down in your guidebook. Uh, within every one of us, the thing that is tempting to um, divide us and actually leave us embittered rather than joyful is uh, temptation. Uh, here's what I mean. The temptation to, to do my own thing. The temptation to get my own way. And the temptation to make it all about me. As is often the case, this outline comes straight out of the text. And it is pers a personal confession. I just want you to know that I'm often tempted to do my own thing. I'm often tempted to get my own way. I'm often tempted to make it all about me. And I would imagine that there's many of you that would say, yeah, I have a tendency to do the same. And all three of these are kryptonite to relationships, marriages, families, work environments, and churches. When you get a group of people that are tempted to do their own thing, get their own way, make it all about them, then you will find incredible division and strife. So the first thing, the temptation to do my own thing. Look at what Paul writes in verse 12. Dear friends, just wanna point out once again how these people uh, were so loved by Paul. You always followed my instructions when I was with you. And now that I'm away, it is even more important. So what's Paul saying? Well, uh, Paul started the church. Uh, he was their pastor for a little while. He was there physically doing life with them, living with them. He, he married and, and buried them. He, you know, he cared for them. He led their group. He went to coffee with them. Like he was there. He was their lowercase p pastor. He was their lowercase s shepherd. And he says to them, hey, guys, when I was with you, you were so great to like uh, do everything that I instructed. And you were applying the teaching to your life. And we were a community of faith together. But now that I have left, everything is starting to fall apart. And Paul's like broken up about that. How many of you can remember the very first time that your parents left you at home alone for the very first time? How many of you can remember the first time you get the keys to the car and you were the only one driving? First time ever. Like you didn't have a mom or a dad in the car with you. I got this like freedom. Um, who you were in that moment says a lot. So like I remember the very first time I ever got the keys to the car and I didn't have my mom or dad with me. My mom was making dinner. She said, Aaron, can you run to the grocery store, get a gallon of milk for dinner? She handed me the keys and I got in her car for the first time. Nobody else was in the car. And I kind of lost my mind. Like I, I remember like I, I turned the music up way louder than, you know, my mom would ever let me. And I listened to the song that I was not allowed to listen to. You know, Metallica's Inner Sandman, right? Just awesome. I just turn that up. I, and uh, uh, I, went to, I went to a Metallica concert a couple years ago. Everybody was old. It was just wild. All right, so, uh, so uh, but I digress. Anyway, so like, I'm in the car, and, and here's the other thing that I did, all right? Um, 
not, not recommending this, but um, I jumped my mom's car. N- not with cables, like all four wheels off the ground. Like I, I like figured out how to do that. Like I found a curb and jumped it, right? So that's what I did with my freedom, right? When nobody else was there. Here's what, here's what Paul's saying. Hey guys, like now that I'm not there, it, I, I, I had a mentor tell me this a long time ago. He said, uh, the, the, the quality or the legacy of someone's leadership is not how things go when they're there, but after they're gone. So I think Paul's broken up about this because uh, I think that Paul was a very popular pastor. And he, now he's beginning to wonder, like, was your devotion to me or was it to Jesus? Because now that I'm not there, you guys are arguing with each other. You guys are taking your eyes off of Christ. This is why I just want to say to you guys, like, it is the honor of my life to be your pastor. I do not want this church to be built around my personality. That's why I share the teaching. I do not want this church to be built around who I am. Uh, That's why I wanna continue to point to Jesus. I have zero desire to be a celebrity pastor. Those words make me throw up in my mouth. I wanna actually, amen. Don't agree with that too much. I mean, so wow. (laughs) So here's the deal. I I I want you, I, I, I wanna do everything I can to earn your trust. I would never expect it. But please don't put your trust in me. Please don't put your trust in Pastor Ryan. Please don't put your trust in a campus pastor or a group leader or a worship person. Now, love them. Oh, man, please honor them, encourage them. We're human beings. We need your encouragement. Two things make me cringe. When somebody walks up to me in the lobby and they say, oh, it's like I'm meeting a celebrity. That makes me cringe. The other thing that makes me cringe is they say, well, I don't want to compliment you because I don't want you to get a big head. <laughs> I'm like, both those things are like off, right? Like, like I'm a human. Like, I need, I need encouragement. I need your prayer. Uh, Trust me, don't put your trust in me. Put your trust in Jesus. If you are here for any other reason other than chasing after him, then we'll let you down. So uh, long range for me, I'm, I'm currently trying to lead and make decisions for the day, hopefully way off in the future, when I pass this off to somebody else uh, my, my desire in prayer is that this church would continue, they wouldn't even skip a beat because you're still chasing after King Jesus. So Paul goes on and he says this, he goes, I want you to work hard. I want you to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. Well, you know, that that can be kind of a little bit of a scary verse, but if you remember what I said last week, uh, we cannot earn salvation, right? Uh, that, That Jesus earned it for us, Jesus paid the price. Uh, so he's not saying earn your salvation. We're saved by grace through faith. Uh, he doesn't say work for your salvation. He says work hard to what? Show the results of your salvation. Oh, that's different. So it's like, oh, so, so Jesus died to make me clean. Jesus redeemed me. He saved me by grace. And so now I'm actually working hard against those things that would actually show like, hey, I, I'm a Christian, but I'm not very gracious towards others. I'm a Christian, but I'm not very patient. I'm a Christian, but I'm not very joyful. He goes, man, yes, we're all human beings. We are all in process, but we work hard not to earn salvation, but to show the results of it. And then he says, do this towards God with deep reverence and fear. That's a little bit of a scary kind of a thing. What in the world does that mean? I just think it simply means this. Give God the weight he deserves. Honestly, we speak of God too lightly. God has no interest in being your co-pilot, right? He wants to be the pilot, right? It's like, God has no interest in kind of being your add-on, you know, it's like your assistant. And oftentimes I think we have a tendency to sort of talk down towards God as if he's in our debt or as if he owes us an explanation. Um, I love what God says to Job 
And I think he says it very directly and he says it very pastorally. But Job, his whole life fell apart and Job's questioning God. And God, I've never forgotten this. God just says to Job, hey Job, where were you when I was laying the foundations of the world? And all of a sudden, I think it's just like dawns on Job that he realizes that he's uh, well above his pay grade. It's this idea that we're gonna give God the weight he deserves. God has a perspective that I do not have. Secondly, the temptation to get my own way, Paul addresses this in verse 13. He goes, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. All right, so uh, pop quiz, pop quiz everybody, Uh, but it's an open book test, which are my favorite kind. All right, so we'll leave the verse up on the screen. Uh, and I want you to, uh, uh, you know, if you know the answer, yell it out audibly, even at our other locations, all right? So from that passage, who is at work? God, all right, yeah, say it confidently. God, yeah, yeah there you go, you're in church. Right, you can say it, all right. Uh, uh, at work in who? You, me, I'll also accept us. All right, that's good. Um, is God a giver or a taker? He's a giver, all right? Is desire and power a bad thing? No, according to not, not according to that verse. Apparently, like, a lot of it depends on motivation and to what end, all right? Who provides this desire and power? God. Like, he's the one that fills us with it. To do what? Please him. Yeah, there's a lot of good theology in that verse. See, so, so we're chasing after, we're working hard. God is the one who is at work. Here's what I, somebody needs to hear this today. God is at work in your life right now. And some of you are still asking the question if he even exists. He's at work. He's sanding away some of the rough edges. He's trying to heal you from trauma. He's trying to get your attention. He's, he's trying to help you discover the you that he made you to be before sin messed all that up. He's chasing after you, he's he's wooing you. And and here's the thing about what God desires to do in you is that um, God is way more concerned about who you're becoming than delivering you from the set of circumstances that you're walking through. This is why his answer to prayer isn't always yes, isn't always right away. Because God's trying to form you and me into the character and the likeness of Jesus Christ. I wish this wasn't the case, but just from experience and observation over the years, I've just seen that the times and the moments where I've grown the most is when I've walked through some of the darkest valleys. It's when I've experienced some of the most pain. And God desires not that we would be conformed to the world around us, but that we would be transformed. And listen, that takes some time. And that takes a process, and we've gotta trust God in, in this. And um, you know, I remember years ago, I was going through a really challenging time, and it was really ministry related, it was with my job, and I won't even go into all the details, but I remember pulling the car off to the side of the road, it was a Sunday afternoon, and I, I was by myself, and I just started crying and, and crying out to God. And um, I was really frustrated. And I was frustrated because I felt like we weren't getting the results that we needed to get in church. I was just discouraged for a lot of different things. And, and uh, as I was crying out to God, this just sort of spilled out of me. Uh, apparently, I'd been watching Jerry Maguire or something, because it's what Jerry Maguire said to Cuba Gooding Jr. in the locker room. But in my prayer to God, I was like, God, I'm trying to help you. God, I was like, God, help me help you. Can you believe that I, like, I would pray that? 
Like, and it, it just, I didn't even have time to really think about it. It's horrible theology. It's bad emotions, right? I was just like, God, help me help you, man. And I remember the moment, like, I, I, I said it, and then, like, I just sat quietly in the car, and I just had this sensation that he was smiling at me, and then it sort of turned into laughter. I was like, all right, thanks. You know, so I started the car, I went home, and I'm feeling sorry for myself. And that evening, my wife asked me if I would move the couch from one side of the living room to the other. Now, my son, Connor, he's 20 now, but he was like two at the time. And so I'm moving the couch, I'm pushing it across the living room. Connor's in his diaper, he gets between me and the couch, and he starts pushing too. And he's grunting, and he's but he isn't doing anything, right? Like, I'm the one doing the pushing. And I remember at one point, like, he looked up at me, and he was like, help me, Daddy. And then I realized why God was laughing at me. <laughs> See, oftentimes we're like, hey, God, can I join in on the thing that I'm doing? God, hey, God, can I get your attention? God, help me help you. And God's like, no, I actually, I'm not like, it's not that he wants us to, to, to uh, come through and give us the set of circumstances that he wants. He's trying to conform us into his image. And then Paul goes on, man. He says this, it just, it's just gonna get a little harder before it gets better. Verse 14, do everything without complaining and arguing, <laughs> to which I kind of complained about that this week. I was like, really, everything? Everything, God? You just took away two of the things I'm the most naturally good at. The, complaining and arguing, that's like America's favorite pastime. I, I mean, I'm half convinced that collegiate and professional sports exist so that we can complain and argue. Have you ever been, it's, it's always amazing to me um, to watch like grown men, even every, if you're at the game or watching the game, yell passionately at the screen for the wide receiver who is an elite athlete and a specimen of a human, <laughs> drop a ball. <laughs> and I'm like, I can't believe he dropped the ball. And I'm like, well, he was running, right? <laughs> faster than you'll ever run from somebody way bigger than you'll ever run from. It's like, how many of us have ever dropped our phone and we're just standing there? So, so maybe we could cut the elite athlete some slack. So Paul says, do everything. And I think most of us know, you know, we shouldn't complain and argue, but in certain exceptions, we're like, I'm entitled to complain and argue. Well, what is complaining? Well, let's just break it down. Complaining is useless verbal commentary about things you cannot change. It is the Twinkies of relationships. Feels good to do it. Absolutely no nutritional value. And you walk away from it and you're like, I kind of feel gross right now. You know, kind of felt good in the moment, but I don't know that it was worth it because it wasn't. It actually really chipped away at that relationship. Well, what is arguing? Well, James 4 explains it so well. James says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Then he answers it. They come from your desires that battle within you. So you desire, but you do not have. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you argue and fight. And this is plaguing the Western world. And it is the cancer of relationships, marriages, friendships, uh, relationships with your kids, and churches. (laughs) 
you ever know, have you ever just been so stubborn that you're in an argument with your spouse and then all of a sudden it dawns on you that you know you're wrong, but you keep arguing anyway? <laughs> yeah, me neither, but I'm sure somebody out there probably has that experience. See, so, so what is that? It's this idea that I, I desire and I want, but I'm not getting what I think I deserve. And at the source of this is a sense of entitlement. And in other words, it's the temptation to make it all about um, me. And so I become kind of the focus. So why should we do everything without complaining and arguing? Well, he answers it in verse 15. I love how the NIV puts it, so I'm gonna read this verse out of the NIV. It says, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 32. When Moses was leading the Israelites who were often always complaining against him. And he says, you'll be blameless and pure in a warped and crooked generation. So he says, hey man, you, you, if we can manage to eliminate or minimize the complaining and arguing, then, then actually we're gonna really stand out in a warped and crooked generation. See, complaining never wins the culture. It just drives them away. But if we can manage to do the opposite, then we'll stand out, which is what he says at the end of verse 15. He goes, live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. If any of you have ever been out west, maybe to Wyoming or Idaho, and you walk out, like you're miles and miles away from any city, and you just look up at the sky, and it's so dark, and yet the stars look so bright. That's what Paul's driving at. You know, you can look at the darkness of our culture through a certain set of lenses. You can look at it through a lot of fear and trepidation, or you can look at it as an opportunity to shine like stars. And he doesn't say anything, uh, it, it doesn't mean that truth isn't important, it doesn't mean that morality isn't important. Those are important. But notice where he says for us to start. Um, try to eliminate complaining and arguing. Try to not make this so much about you and, and me, but begin to really focus upon others. And something strange happens. When you can begin to put this, the focus on somebody else, then you earn the opportunity to speak. Then you, op you earn the opportunity to, to serve. Then you earn the opportunity to, to influence. And then he says in verse 16, hold firmly to the word of life. Then on the day of Christ's return, I will be proud that I did not run the race in vain and that my work was not useless. And so he just says, I want, you to, I want you to hold on to the word of life. And I wanna encourage you to do the same. I want you to chase after. I, I, I wanna ask you how you're doing when it comes to God's word. Um, are you looking at it as an add-on? But, but is it something that you're really devoted to? Is it something that you're thirsting for? Is it something that you're chasing after? I wanna encourage you not to turn a sermon you know, into something that you just consume on a treadmill on a Tuesday morning. Not that you can't listen to sermons on treadmills. But what, what are you bringing to that? And are you asking God to, are you, having, are you looking to have an encounter with God, not just a few little takeaways that you can apply to your life? The, the, the sermon isn't living and active, but the word of God is. And so the word of God is living and active and God wants to speak something fresh into your life. Are you holding on to that? And then in verse 17, he says, but I will rejoice even if I lose my life. <laughs> wow, such a tremendous amount of faith there. 
He's like, I'll rejoice even if I lose my life. And then he says this curious phrase, pouring it out like a liquid offering. Some translations say drink offering to God. Just like your faithful service is an offering to God. And I want you to think about that. Like as you serve others, really what you're doing is you're pouring your life out as unto God. And then he says this, and I want all of you, all of you to share that Joy. Yes, you should rejoice, and I will share your joy. So here's what Paul just said. He said, as God fills you up, as you cling to his word, as you hold on to him, and then you pour yourself out, he says, that's a joyful person. A joyful person is somebody in which that we place ourselves in a position to have an encounter with God where God does what only he can. He fills my cup. And then as an act of gratitude, I pour myself out to others for his glory. So this idea of liquid offering or drink offering is not likely a phrase that you used this past week. But it was kind of something that came out of the Old Testament sacrificial system where they would have a burnt offering to God and then they would come and they would pour a drink offering over that, just a, a liquid. Here, here's what it would do. Just like whenever you have like a little fire on your grill and you pour some water on it, the flame shoots up and there's some smoke. Same would happen on the burnt offering and they kind of saw it as something tangible where there was this billow of smoke going up to God and they kind of looked at that as something, as a tangible offering up to him. This is what Paul says that his life is like and it's what he invites all of us into as well. Now, here's the thing. This seems so counterintuitive to us because we've been discipled by the culture. And the culture says, well, you need to fill yourself up. You need to do you. You need to go after the thing. You, you know, and I'm not against self-care, but I think self-care gets dangerously close to this whole idea of, well, I'll fill myself up. Instead of this idea of like, I'm gonna put myself in a position where I'm gonna have an encounter with God and let him fill me. And so I think that for so many of us, um, we, we, we've got a lot of empty cups among us. I know at times, even for me, like uh, I just have to watch it. Like I have to monitor my heart. I have to monitor if I'm, if I'm empty. And if I'm empty, that's a red flag. Now, I think for many of us, when we're empty, we're hurting. And when we're hurting and we're empty, we have a tendency that tempta- we, we are likely to fall into the temptation of getting my own way, making it all about me. And the, and the irony is, is it just leaves us emptier than ever. Or we, we pull away. I don't know how many people I talk to who uh, I just stop seeing at church or they pull away from serving and then I'll bump into them somewhere and they'll come up to me and say, you know, I was just going through a rough time and one of the first things to go is church. It just seems like so counterintuitive. I mean, I get it. But it's what the enemy would want you to do. He wants to isolate. I'm empty, so I'm gonna pull back for me. And, but where are you gonna get filled? Or, or we do this. You have one empty cup who meets another cup and they decide to get married. <laughs> and so it's like, well, you fill my cup? Well, no, I thought you'd fill my cup and then eventually falls apart because your spouse can never fill your cup or a, a, a new friend. This is, this is where unmet expectations come from. This is where I had this set of expectations, you didn't fill me, and so I got offended, and then my unaddressed offense turned into bitterness, and then my bitterness turned into contempt, and then the relationship fell apart. This is work environment, this is church, like I'm not getting filled here, so maybe I need to go to a different church, or whatever it may be, and so we, we look to 
to get filled by someone or something else. Now, I wanna want say something here, and I wanna get the tone right. I wanna say this very pastorally, but very directly. It, it's nobody's responsibility to fill your cup. N nobody else can fill your cup. The only person that can fill your cup is God. And when you look to somebody else to fill your cup, whether that's a spouse or a friend or a boss or a pastor, you place upon them a weight that they cannot possibly live up to or bear. They are not your savior. Jesus is. As your pastor, I don't know everything I need to know to fill your cup. As your pastor, there is not enough of me to fill everybody's cup here. My responsibility is not to fill your cup. And some of you may be like, well, what good are you then? <laughs> fair question, fair question, I don't know. Here, here's the thing though, man, there, there have been times early in my ministry where I, I tried. You know, somebody would say, you know, well, the sermon isn't deep enough. Okay, well, let me study harder. You know, let me try to fill your cup. You know, we need to do such and such ministry. Okay, let me try harder, we'll, we'll try to fill your cup. And it, it's just, it's, it's, it's futile. So, so if you're looking for joy, if you're looking for fulfillment, if you're looking for more, then here's what I wanna ask you to do. I wanna ask you to place yourself in a position where you have an encounter and an outpouring of God's spirit to fill your cup because only God can. And then as God fills, fills your cup, uh, here's what you do, you, you start emptying your cup. This is, this is the equation for joy. Joy is you allow God to fill your cup and then you just start pouring yourself out into the lives of others. Now listen, I'm not talking about being taken advantage of. I'm not talking about uh, allowing yourself to just be burned out. I'm saying that the antidote to burnout is not to pull away and isolate or to make it more about you. I'm saying the antidote to burnout is to get alone with God on a consistent basis, to hear from him, to let him fill your cup. And then what you do with that full cup is you just start emptying yourself out. You start pouring yourself out to other people just as Paul modeled and Jesus demonstrated on the cross. So here's where I wanna uh, end today. Last week, I had a bunch of bags up here weighed down and I just encourage you to bow and to... Um, Figuratively speaking, remove the weight that you've been carrying by confession and repentance and just giving it to God. Here's what I wanna ask you to do this week. We got any empty cups here today? Burned out souls, beaten down, discouraged, dry. What I wanna ask you to do, last week I asked you to bow and you, by all means, you can bow this week as well if you'd like. I wanna ask you just to extend your hands like this. Just two open hands. This is a posture of desperation. This is a posture of receiving. This is a posture of God, I'm a dry cup. And maybe right now you've been running after someone or something else to fill your cup and it's just led to more burnout and bitterness. But maybe today we would just sit and have an encounter with him. Here's what God has promised. Where he is wanted, where people are pursuing him, he pours himself out. He reawakens us, he fills us up, he does a work within us. And it's an encounter. And I wanna encourage us to have an encounter with God. I wanna encourage you to go from being a watcher to a worshiper, where you come to God just as you are and let him fill your cup.
and then from what he fills you with, you pour yourself out. You know why? So that way he can pour more in. And so we're gonna do that right now. Just an extended time to pray. Just an extended time to receive. Uh, maybe you might wanna just pray in groups around the room. Maybe you might wanna get on your knees. Maybe you just wanna continue to keep your hands extended. But right now, here's just your prayer. God, would you fill me? God, would you fill me? I've been trying to do this my own way. Would you fill me up so that I can pour myself out? Lord God, we're so grateful for the example of Jesus. We're so grateful for the writing of Paul. And so God, we just come to you right now and we just ask that you would forgive us for making this too much about us, for living our lives maybe through a sense of entitlement, maybe looking to a spouse or a friend or a boss or a pastor to do for us what only you can. So there's a time and a place for the intellect. There's a time and a place for counseling. There's a time and a place for hands-on practical application. There's also a time and a place for just an encounter. You know, our relationships aren't just the sum of what we know. They're the sum of what we feel. And so, God, we just ask you to pour out your spirit into this room. I pray that something supernatural would happen, that somebody would be reawakened, that somebody would come alive, that somebody would be set free, somebody would know that they're loved, that there would be healing and change and a shift in perspective. God, we just want more of you. We're hurting and we're dry and we need what only you can provide. In the name of Jesus, we ask.